0: Thank you for downloading from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Ravi Zacharias and the team at www.rzim.org.
1: I believe in this book we have the formula for what Jesus said is the ultimate goal of life, to worship the Lord your God and serve him ultimately.
0: Hello and welcome to Let My People Think with Ravi Zacharias. It's been reported that Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. What causes some Christians to look less like Jesus and more like the world? Let's join Ravi Zacharias this week as he explores the connection between worship and discipleship in his message, The Foundation of Contemporary Discipleship.
1: What is tragic in almost any survey that is being conducted today is that the private life of a Christian, so-called, is very little different from the private life of a skeptic or a non-believer. In other words, our private behavior is so little apart, and we say to ourselves, is this what Christ really called us to? So the challenge towards this discipleship yesterday, I summed up, would be in the materialistic, the utilitarian, and the hedonistic tug. And Jesus ended by saying, be gone, it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In the New Testament, this is the only time those two words are brought together. In the Greek language, there are really four words for worship. The most commonly used is proskuneo, from which we get the transliteration of prostration. The second one is latreia, to serve. The third is liturgia, from which we get liturgy. And the fourth is homologia, from which we get the concept of an amen or an affirmation. Jesus takes two of the key words, proskuneo and latreia, almost going back to the way Joshua himself said that they would worship the Lord his God and him only would be served. So this is an all encompassing expression of the human heart and will. I want to set two little backdrops here before I get into the heart of the message in the book of Malachi. The first backdrop I want to say set for you is a secular one, philosophical one if you were to read any of the great three Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and on down the line, if you had asked them what is the most difficult question for philosophy to answer, their response would have been this, to find unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Now the failure in this world Listen to me carefully. The failure in this world in their attempt to find unity in diversity externally has been because they have not found unity in diversity internally. There is no inner skin. There's no galvanizing glue that pulls together the unity of everything that you express. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, listen to this. It was a secular thinker, D.H. Lawrence, who said this profound statement. Follow me, please. He says this, we want to delude ourselves that at the problem of our emptiness in life, love lies at the root. You hear that? We want to delude ourselves into believing that love lies at the root. I want to say to you, it isn't. Love is only the branches. The root goes beyond love. A naked kind of isolation. There's an isolated me that does not meet and mingle within myself. It is true what I'm saying to you. There seems to be a beyond in you and a beyond in me which should go further than love. Beyond the scope of the stars, just as some stars are beyond the scope of our vision. So our search goes beyond the scope of love. At least I think that is at the root going beyond love itself. D.H. Lawrence is onto something. He's onto something. He says, we think love is at the root of all of our problems. He says, I wanna tell you, it's something beyond that because there's something within me that doesn't come together, that doesn't mingle. In the book of Malachi, this is addressed. I just read for you a few scattered verses. I have loved you, says the Lord in verse two, but you ask, how have you loved us? Verse six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Then verse 10, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. Verse 13, and you also say what a burden it is, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. But then he goes on in the end in verse 16 of chapter 3, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. I believe in this book, we have the formula for what Jesus said is the ultimate goal of life, to worship the Lord your God and serve him ultimately. To worship the Lord your God and serve him ultimately. Listen to the dialogue that goes on in these 55 verses. I have loved you says the Lord and you say, in what way have you loved us? If you go back across the Old Testament, let me take you to just two books. Around 795 before Christ, Hosea was a prophet. He was preaching to the Northern Kingdom of Israel, reminding them of all that was going to fall upon them in captivity. But his wife Gomer became a prostitute, and she went out into the streets and sold herself. Three children were born out of this marriage and their names were given to be judgment, no more mercy, not my people. That's what the children reminded them of. Hosea went and stood in line outside a brothel and had to buy his wife back at half the price of a slave and a day's rations. Imagine a prophet having to stand outside a brothel to win the love of his wife back and bring her back. God used that tiny little parsonage to illustrate the people. Do you see what it is like for this man of God? to be betrayed by his spouse who sold herself as a prostitute, you don't understand? Now you do, what do you think Hosea feels like and the children feel like? Now I want you to know how I feel because I am the one who offered my hand to you and you have played the harlot. That was in the late 700s. 200 years later comes Ezekiel, who's preaching to the southern kingdom because the northern has gone into captivity and the south is about to go into captivity. Here's what Ezekiel says in the mouth of God. I was walking on the highways of this land one day. I heard a little baby crying. I went and rescued the baby. I washed the baby with water. I covered the baby with soft pieces of cloth, and I left the baby in compassionate care. Many years went by, I walked through the land again. I saw a beautifully attractive young maiden. I recognized her. She was the one I rescued as a baby on the highway. She's the one I was now looking eyeball to eyeball. I offered her my hand in marriage, and she said she would be wedded to me. Israel? You were the little baby I rescued. You were the young woman I was betrothed to. Now after years of being wedded to you, I wish I could call you a prostitute because a prostitute has at least one thing in her defense. She's paid by her lovers to lie with her. You are worse, you're paying your lovers to lie with you. Late 700s, harlotry. Late 500s, harlotry was a flattering term. 400 before Christ, I have loved you, and you say, in what way? They failed to recognize, simply failed to recognize that God's love for them was preeminent. In fact, when he looked to them, he said, Come closer, come closer. You are the little maiden in my eye. Do you know who's the little maiden in your eye? When you get so close to that one whom you love so dearly that if they look into your eyeballs, they will see a miniature reflection of themselves. A beautiful metaphor of what love is all about. And they say, in what way have you loved us? You know, in the book of Isaiah, God says this, what more could I have done for you that I have not already done? Wherefore, when I'm looking for grapes, why are you bringing forth wild grapes? If God could say that through the prophet Isaiah, how much more could He say that after Calvary when He says to you and me, I have loved you? I have loved you. Here is the first response I make to you You cannot worship God without the emotion. You cannot worship God without the emotion. I did not say emotionalism. I said emotion. Are you stirred by the emotion of your Christian life? Are you bringing your emotion to bear when you are worshiping the Lord? He says, I have loved you. And you say, in what way? But then he goes on to say this, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. He says, "Why?" they say, how do we do this? He said, number one, you call me father. Where is my honor? Where is my respect? When I was a little boy, the famed American Ohio State athlete, Jesse Owens, who won what, three or four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics, that African American hero under the nose of Hitler who shattered records. He was invited to India and my dad was the president of several organizations and they were hosting him one evening. And because of my father, I was sitting in the front row and watching this specimen of athleticism, Jesse Owens. I didn't know much about it, but I did know that he was a champion. And you know, in India, we are very courteous people when we visited each other's homes. But once you get out of the home and onto the road, or you ever have to stand in line, all the courtesies go to the winds. We in India don't know how to make a straight line in front of a counter. Everybody's like this. So Jesse Owens said he'd sign autographs. None of us could get close. I went close to him and I got jammed against him. I was all right. As long as some part of my body touched some part of his, I was quite happy. I felt it would rub off. And then he leaned over and took my little hand in his big hand and he said, what's your name, son? I don't know if I got it right. He shook hands with me and signed his autograph in my autograph book. I went home and for many, many months, either my friends or my relatives wished that either I or Jesse Owens had never been born because no matter what they said, I would begin by saying, I remember when I was with Jesse Owens. (laughs) What do you think it would have been like if I'd swatted him on the back and said, hey, Jess, 100 meters, just you and me? No, he was still Jesse Owens, sir. He was still Jesse Owens, sir. In Hindi, the word for father is pitta. The word for mother is mata. But you never call your father pitta. You never call your mother mata. You call your father Pitaji. You call your mother mataji. We don't refer to Gandhi as Gandhi. It's Gandhiji. Ji is the term of reverence and respect. So when you say, you call me father, where is my honor? He is my father, Lord. He is my Lord. You cannot worship him without reverence. We have lost this aspect in our time. We've lost it, you know. I was not a very nice young man. I I don't think I was bad in the bad sense. You couldn't do too many bad things in India, but I was just basically not interested in things spiritual. But I remember one day the Sunday school teacher of the Anglican Church of the Redemption, that prestigious church in Delhi, asked me if I would play the part of Joseph in the nativity mime. I said, what does that mean? She said, we want you to be Joseph. In display, I said, I'm not an actor. He said, no, 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 you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. When I tell you to put your arm out, Mary will put her arm in yours, and you walk up and stand there, and then when I gesture to you, you turn around, Mary will put her arm in yours, and you walk out. That's all you have to do. I was going to say no until they introduced me to Mary. I said, wow. I'll get her to put her arm in mine. I, this was... Utopian. I said, great. I said, all right, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I arrived early and I was walking around the church. I could hardly wait for the rehearsal. So I was walking around and I went to the front of the altar and I saw a silver bowl with wafers in it. I don't know what it was. I said, this is a charitable organization. It's probably for the hungry. I'm hungry. I took one, it wasn't very tasty, but I took all of it, put it in my pockets and I was walking around. And as I was walking around, this man walks out of the vestry there, it said vestry. I still remember his name, the Reverend Father Ernest T. John. So he comes out of there and he looks at me and the scrums coming out of my mouth and wafers in my hand and he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm Joseph in the nativity mind. Would you like a wafer? If stairs could kill, I would have been buried right there in the crypt. He said, come on back here, come on back here. He said, what have you got in your pockets? I said, some more wafers. He said, get it out. He said, do you know what you've just done? I said, what is it? He said, do you know what you've just done? I said, I took some wafers. He said, you have committed sacrilege. Oh, I know that. I don't know what sacrilege was. I didn't enjoy Mary's arm in mine at all. I was afraid when I got home, the police would be waiting for me. And my mother would say to me, what did you do committing sacrilege? I hid that word in my mind, didn't even know where I could find the meaning. Years later, I was reading G. Campbell Morgan in his book on Malachi. Here's what he said. Sacrilege is defined as taking something that belongs to God and using it profanely. He said, but the worst kind of sacrilege is taking something and giving it to God when it means absolutely nothing to you. Do you hear that? Taking something and giving it to God when it means absolutely nothing to you. I want to ask you this. Do you know what gets to the heart of worship? I know the word can be misused. You cannot worship Him without sacrifice. You can't. You cannot worship Him without you costing your own comfort zone, taking away from your own comfort, be it in the giving of your substance or of your energy, or of your talent, or of your time. You know the image in the world, what it is? If you're really smart, you should become a rocket scientist. If you're not that smart, but still smart, you could become a lawyer or a doctor or something. And if you, if you really are good for nothing up here, you might want to consider the ministry. Somebody wrote this, there was a young student at Trinity who had cracked the square root of infinity, but to work with the digits caused him such fidgets that he chucked math and took up divinity. (laughs) That's what we think. Do you know who were the most learned from the medieval times? Do you know who started the universities and the places of learning? It was those in the ministry. They were amongst the highest and the most educated I almost wish I could read for you a letter that is in my BlackBerry, but I don't have it with me. I got a letter from a 14-year-old boy in Bahrain. And that letter that this guy wrote to me, absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant in the way he wrote it. He said, I heard you when I was age five, I am now 14. I have read every one of your books. And he quoted them, and he quoted the titles, the names, 14 years old. He said, Pastor Zacharias, may God give you a long life. I have read your books, I've heard your CDs, keep doing what you are doing. The tears that filled my eyes when I read that, and I am making a trip there just to spend a day with him. He's a genius in his mind, and a man that God can use. You have a mind that God has given to you. You will never be able to worship him without giving him your best. The best of your time. The best of your intellect. The best of your substance the best of your gifts. I say to you that you cannot worship God without emotion. You cannot worship God without reverence. You cannot worship God without sacrifice. And lastly, he says, oh, that somebody would shut the door so that he won't light these useless fires. You cannot worship God without the purity of heart. For who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord but he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Do you know the sequence in the Old Testament? You know that? The sequence was redemption, righteousness, and worship. You cannot be righteous until you are redeemed. You cannot worship until you're redeemed and righteousness. That's the logic of it. That's the chronology of it. First he brought them out of Egypt, then he gave them the moral law and finally gave them the tabernacle and the prescription for worship. For your heart has to be in tune with God, with the emotion, with reverence, with sacrifice. All of this coming together to express to you that deep-seated devotion of proskuneo, latria, liturgia, homologia, the affirmation, the liturgy, the service, the prostration—all of this comes together in worship. And he says, "Don't do it if you don't come to me with that heart that intends to be honest." If you do it with duplicity, you're actually treating the Lord's table as contemptible. Let me now define for you what I mean by worship. But maybe I can move with one more thought. When you don't have that love, when you don't have that reverence slash obedience, when you don't have that sacrifice, Do you know what the book of Malachi says? You have also snuffed at it and said what a weariness it is. Worship became a boring exercise for them. What a weariness it is. Can you imagine when the purpose for which you are created becomes the boring exercise for you? You know what it would be like? It would be like embracing the wife you're wedded to as the love of your youth, and finding no enchantment, no comfort, no thrill in it. Worship after 1,000 years from the Exodus had become a boring exercise to the people. The Reader's Digest had this article, and the Lord said unto Noah, where is the ark which I have commanded thee to build? It's quite humorous actually. And Noah said unto the Lord, Verity, verily, I have had three carpenters off ill. The gopher wood supplier had let me down. Yea, even though the gopher wood had been on order for nigh upon twelve months. What can I do, O Lord? And the Lord said to Noah, what about that ark that I want finished even after seven days and seven nights? And Noah said, it will be so. But it was not so. And the Lord said to Noah, what seemeth to be the trouble this time? And Noah said unto the Lord, mine subcontractor had gone bankrupt. The pitch which thou commandest me to put on the outside and on the inside of the ark had not arrived. The plumber has gone on strike. Shem, my son who helpeth me on the ark side of the business has formed himself a pop group with his brother Ham and Japheth. Lord, I'm undone. And the Lord grew angry and said, what about the animals, the male and the female of every sort that I ordered to come unto thee to keep their seed alive upon the face of the earth? And Noah said, they have been delivered unto the wrong address, but should arrive on Friday. And the Lord said, how about the unicorns and the fowls of the air by sevens? And Noah wrung his hands and wept saying, Lord, unicorns are a discontinued line. Thou canst not get them for love nor money. And the fowls of the air are sold only in half dozens. Lord, Lord, thou knowest how it is. And the Lord in his wisdom said, Noah, my son, I know how it is. Why else do you think I have caused a flood to descend upon the earth? Discipleship. What's the platform on which you're going to stand? It's worship. That's what Christ looks for in you and me. They that worship me shall worship me in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him.
0: Profound words from Ravi that echo what King David once wrote, I will not offer you a sacrifice that costs me nothing. You can listen to this message again on our website by going to rzim.org and clicking on the Listen tab. And while you're there, be sure to look for more content that you can read, listen to or watch. That web address again is rzim.org or rzim.ca in Canada. To order a copy of today's message, call us at 1-800-448-6766 and ask for the title, The Foundation of Contemporary Discipleship. You can send prayer requests, comments or donations to us at RZIM, P.O. Box 1820, Roswell, Georgia 30077. Let My People Think is a listener-supported radio ministry and is furnished by Ravi Zacharias International Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia.